So this morning I'm, I'm pleased to continue the exploration of the theme of, of developing equanimity in the midst of action. In the midst of action and interaction, really a crucial theme for our lives. How do we do that? And this is the third of what probably will be four talks and explorations on that theme. Uh, for those who don't know, the first two talks are available on the web uh, at the website Dharma Seed. But I'll, what I'll do today is I'll give a brief review of what we've done the last two times, because there, I know there are people here who weren't here at either one or both of those times. And then I'm going to bring in some, some further themes. I'm going to particularly talk about the, uh, in more depth about the role of the body, the role of somatic practices in uh, cultivating equanimity and being more equanimous in challenging situations. I'm going to talk some about that, and we'll probably look at that some next time when I come, which is two weeks from now. And then I also want to bring in a further core principle for working with equanimity in the midst of interaction. Uh, Last time, and the time before, we looked at at a teaching called the Eight Worldly Winds, which is how does one stay equanimous when there is pleasure or pain, gain or loss, fame or disrepute, and praise or blame. That's one teaching, and I'll come back and talk about that briefly. But I want to bring in a further teaching, which is another equanimity teaching. So we will have had two uh, focused equanimity teachings. And the second equanimity teaching uh, could be said to be um, expressed in different ways, but it's the teaching of somehow um, totally acting in a full way, doing one's best, and letting things be what they, they are. Please. What's equanimity? What is equanimity? Okay, I will. Um, that comes under the brief review of the last two times. <laughs> okay, so thank you. Uh, so thank you for the cue. And now, <laughs> and now we will uh, look a little bit at the... the um, what we've done the last two weeks, just in a few minutes, because I want to get to these other practices. So uh, the last two times, we've especially uh, looked at the nature of equanimity. Equanimity is a translation of the Pali word upeka, and it means literally uh, uh, keeping balance. So it means keeping balance in the midst of things, uh, in the midst of whatever happens. It means keeping balance um, in terms of what's going on internally, in terms of what's going on in our interactions with others. It has a a variety of qualities. Uh, The most fundamental is a sense of balance. So we practice that on the meditation cushion. We practice when I am sitting and I'm happily with the breath and somewhat blissful, it's not so hard to keep balance. When I'm sitting there and I'm reviewing a really uh, bad or challenging interaction from yesterday and I sit there and I'm thinking about, you know, what I'm going to say to this person, it's harder to keep balance. When I'm angry, it's harder to keep balance. When I'm fearful, it's harder to keep balance. When my mind is out of control, it's harder to keep balance. And so equanimity is a quality that we cultivate 
really in two ways. That's really our focus here. On the one hand, we cultivate equanimity in protected environments like here or on the meditation cushion, relatively protected environments where the conditions are good and we can develop qualities like mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness, wisdom, uh, uh, courage, and so forth that helps us to be uh, stronger in those moments and then can help those, can, those become resources that we use when challenging states come up. So we have this twofold kind of practice. On the one hand, we might say we develop resources, we develop beautiful qualities, we strengthen ourselves in mindfulness, and we do that especially in relatively protected uh, environments when the conditions are good, maybe we take a day off, we come to a retreat, we come here, we're in nature, and so forth, and, it, and it's, uh, the conditions are good to develop these beautiful qualities. And then we also cultivate equanimity when we bring our practice to challenging situations. You know, we, we take the philosophy that our lives are about learning. And we try to take the approach that every situation offers a possibility of learning. Not an easy approach to take. Um, and a lot of what makes our practice deepen is our ability to take that approach into more and more of the challenging parts of our lives. So we don't take our challenging situations as simply a curse, but we take them as a starting point for inquiry and learning. And we need support for that. It's not so easy, easily said, not so easily done. You know, so there's that Tibetan phrase, which I like to repeat uh, from some of the Lojong teachings, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Powerful statement. And we could just put that in your hand and walk around with it and look at your hand a lot and turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Very, very uh, wonderful guidance. So there are these other qualities to equanimity. There's balance, there's a certain kind of evenness. We develop, no matter what happens, we can stay relatively balanced when we're equanimous. And of course, we don't demand that. We don't say, I should always be equanimous. Equanimity, like everything we do, is a practice. Practice means we do our best no matter what happens. That's the principle I'm going to come back to later in the second, second part of the talk. That we come back to this intention to totally do our best, then we let things be what they are and we respond as skillfully as possible. That's our practice moment by moment by moment. That's what we do. So there's that evenness. And last time I brought in a series of haiku to help us understand equanimity. I brought in several Japanese haiku. I brought in several uh, recent haikus, haikus, haiku, haikus about computers. And I can't resist reading another one or two because they're, they're really, really pretty cute. Anyway, these are, I don't know who, who wrote these, you know, but they're Western and these are, these are deep haikus about equanimity in relation to computers, which for many of us is increasingly more challenging in our lives than human relationships. I don't know whether that's true for you, but for many people that's true. So, okay. Three things are certain. Death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred. The Tao that is seen 
is not the true Tao until you bring fresh toner. <laughs> and the last one. So these are, you can see how these are equanimity trainings. The last one. With searching comes loss and the presence of absence. My novel, not found. <laughs> So as we develop an equanimity, we, we become more skillful with computer-related issues. Not taught in the traditional teachings, but in the updated dharma of today, we need to attend to computers. So we, we have a certain kind of evenness. We have um, increasingly a kind of unshakability. This is a, one of the further reaches of equanimity, but that, that sense of uh, something is very deep in us that can be with anything. And we, we particularly can turn to some you know, inspiring stories or inspiring figures. I told the story last time about Martin Luther King, one of the most difficult episodes of his life where he was beyond frustration, had severe doubts about himself, and some kind of powerful spiritual experience came that actually provided him with a deep, and virtually unshakable faith, certainly for the period right after that. And in actuality, his house was bombed a few days after that, and there was still a powerful equanimity there that people were very amazed by. And he was 27 years old you know, that, at that time. So we have that, but there's, there's also a key aspect of equanimity that involves wisdom and understanding, particularly seeing the web of causes and conditions. Equanimity is a heart quality, but it's also informed by wisdom. So it's the ability to see, ah, this is happening because of that. It's to see vast webs of causes and conditions, to whether it's in terms of one's own personal life or in terms of how a situation is occurring in a community or how something is occurring in the world. We, we develop further equanimity as our quality of understanding gets stronger. And there are also aspects of faith. As, as the equanimity is strong, there can be a sense of faith that I have a, uh, the sense of balance. I, I rest in my own understanding. I rest almost in being. You know, I know it's an experience I sometimes had at retreats that I've, I've talked about from time to time where there can be a sense of I am just resting in awareness and being and I could die at this moment and it would be okay. That, that, that experience sometimes occurs. That's, that's an experience of a kind of equanimity. And I imagine that we have that, uh, all of us, at different times, maybe just for a moment, but we can have those kind of experiences. Those are equanimity experiences. And so we've also focused uh, quite a bit on the teaching of the eight worldly winds, which I mentioned earlier, which, which could be interpreted as pointing to how we fall out of equanimity. That is, the eight winds are those uh, forces, those factors which blow us around. We may lose the sense of equanimity when there is pleasure or pain. And equanimity isn't just challenged when we have hard things happen or challenging things happen. It's also uh, challenged sometimes when we have wonderful things happen. We may get really excited about them. We may really grab hold of some pleasure, grab hold of something. You know, we can certainly see that 
in terms of uh, relationships. We can have some, some wonderful connection with someone and we grab hold of it. We're grabbing and we're not really equanimous. You know, and we, things happen. That's very clear, like, you know, maybe from everyone's history of romantic relationships, right? One grabs hold of a relationship and it's, it's not really equanimity, even though there may be things that are happening that are quite beautiful. So we can lose equanimity, not just with uh, unpleasant or difficult things, but also with things that go well. It's important. It's really pointed to by the the teaching of the Eight Worldly Winds, because it gives four sets of which, as it were, one is so-called good, the other is so-called bad. So we have pleasure and pain, gain and loss, uh, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. We mostly focus on the latter uh, of the latter member of each of those sets, right? We focus on pain and loss and disrepute or, you know, not looking good in someone's eyes and also on uh, blame. We focus on those. Those are probably, if we were asked what makes equanimity hard, we'd probably look to those a lot. The teaching of the eight winds says, look at those forces in your life. Study them, take, you know, and I invited people last time to look at how these appear and to uh, identify them when they come and maybe just take two of them, just take pleasure and pain or just take gain and loss or just take uh, praise and blame, which for me is probably the most intense of those, has been historically. And so we can just look at that. What happens when you get praise or blame? And just, we look at it, we identify it, we see when it's happening we study it, you know, and then we have a set of ways to respond more skillfully. <clears throat> so I want to turn now, after that review, to looking at the role of the body in equanimity and then talk about this further principle. And I think it's quite interesting, and I, I've uh, been reflecting on this, for me, in a fresh way, uh, that, that it's helpful, I think, to ask, how can I develop equanimity at the level of wisdom and mindfulness, first, at the level of the heart, second, and at the level of the body, or we might say in the domain of the body, third, that there are ways to cultivate equanimity in each of those areas. It's quite interesting. Traditionally, the emphasis has been on the first two, not so much on the body, even though there are a lot of somatic metaphors for equanimity. The very idea of balance is a body metaphor. You know, it's about, it's really pointing to how the body stays equanimous by, by having a kind of balance. And there are other passages where they really use bodily-based metaphors for saying what equanimity is, unshakable. It's kind of a body metaphor, you know. We stay unshakable, you know, like in martial arts where, you know, some of you may have done martial arts where you, you can notice one of the very simple exercises is, can one stay grounded? You know, and we can know the difference between standing and having your attention going into the ground and standing and just thinking about something. Someone comes by and pushes you when you're grounded you won't move very much. When you're just thinking, you fall over. Very interesting. I'll come back to that. So, the, historically, the focus has been more on wisdom and the heart. And you know, that's how equanimity has been understood. Equanimity has been understood especially as coming out of insight, coming out of 
understanding, maybe traditionally having the wisdom dimension quite well developed, which we, you know, in Buddhism historically understand in terms of understanding suffering and the roots of suffering, the Four Noble Truths, for those who, who know that teaching. The teaching that there is suffering and that the roots of suffering are in a kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away. I won't go into that so much. We can come back and, because uh, I, I teach that a lot here, or we teach that a lot here. But the, the wisdom would be understanding how suffering is occurring and not doing that which leads to suffering. That would be wisdom. And we also understand equanimity in terms of the cultivation of the heart. And one of the ways that equanimity is explicated is in relationship to loving-kindness, compassion, and joy, as with those three comprising a set of four qualities that have to be developed along with each other. So we can sometimes think of equanimity as uh, simply this sense of balance, that, and it, it sometimes is not connected with the heart. You know, where I can, I'm, I'm equanimous, I just see the way everything's happening and I'm kind of aloof and I don't really, may not, I really may not be in my heart, but I'm kind of just, I may have an overly intellectual approach where I look at everything, oh yeah, that's happening because of that, yeah, doesn't affect me, I just see everything clearly. And I may not have much compassion, you know, so the heart element is very important. We talk about equanimity that is grounded in the heart as the heart that can hold everything that can be with everything. And without the heart, there are these distortions where the equanimity can be um, more indifferent or cold or overly intellectual or aloof. Or it can be sometimes equanimity without the heart can be complacent or resigned. You know, you know I'm, I may look equanimous, but I'm actually given up because I, I don't want to deal with things because it's too much or something. That's not true equanimity. So the heart has to be there. You know? And so we also can have this connection with the body, which isn't articulated traditionally. It's interesting. But I think it's very important for us, us meaning people living in Western culture, or what we, for want of a better word, we call Western culture. I once had a friend who is, uh, we would call Native American, she's from Canada, where they call them First Nations. And the first time we ever met, uh, I, you know, uh, I was in a teaching role and I said something about Western culture and she came up to me later and said, what do you mean by Western? You know, coming from an indigenous perspective, you know, what do you mean by Western? And it was the start of a friendship, <laughs> you know, being challenged like that, which I kind of liked, you know, and, and she said, you know, well, Guess what? Uh, my ancestors have lived here for maybe tens of thousands of years. Are we part of Western culture? <laughs> hmm. Interesting, interesting question, right? So, so anyway, so all of these large words we have to put in quotation marks or whatever. But in any case, for us in this culture now, our relationships to our body, for many of us, is problematic. You know, and especially with computers, you know, with so many people are uh, relatively disembodied. You know, we go and our minds are just focused uh, not 
uh, we were not really aware of our bodies, you know. So there are the movements of the last 30 or 40 years which have books with the titles like Coming Back to Our Senses, being able to actually sense, you know, be able to experience the senses. And for me, in learning meditation initially, this was probably the first major revelation, that I wasn't really so much in my body. And I tell the story from time to time about being a student and walking along this path when I was a student for a year in Germany and walking down this path and having the thought to myself, all I am is thinking all the time. I'm not aware of my body. I'm like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> you know, <just> whoa. <laughs> you know, and a lot of other people have made that point. And for me, learning meditation was really about coming back to my body. And I was learning Tai Chi and other things and many of us studying yoga and so forth as a way to be more with the body. And it, you know, some of us probably didn't have that initial conditioning quite as thickly as others. You know, some of us maybe were in our bodies more, but for many of us, uh, we weren't so much. And the kind of work we do may also take us out of our bodies. If we're in an office or at a computer a lot, it takes us away from our bodies. And so I think this really uh, is a crucial area for practice. You know, there have been actually several books written making the point that a large numbers of people doing meditation actually don't connect it with their bodies. Yeah. There's a book by Reginald Ray that's in the bookstore, a very interesting book called Touching Enlightenment, in which he makes the claim that large numbers of people who are doing Buddhist-based meditation are doing so, so more mentally than with their bodies. Very interesting claim. So for me, that's been quite crucial and it's, I find it very important in my teaching. And I think it's very important for understanding how we might have uh, a body-based sense of equanimity. So I want to um, say a little more about that and teach two practices okay, that we can, we can work with. So let's say that we're feeling challenged, you know, that we have a challenging situation come up. And we can um, have different ways of working with it. We can use mindfulness to say, what's happening? Okay, there's anger happening, there's fear happening. We can use mindfulness in that way. We can sometimes say, I'm out of balance, I need to come back to balance. You know, and we maybe we reflect on something. We may reflect on, um, I have a, you know, have a argument with someone and I'm getting out of balance with that person. And I maybe I reflect, you know, it has to be just as much my responsibility as the other person's. That may bring me back to balance. That's using wisdom to come back to equanimity, to reflect like that. Or we, we might reflect also with wisdom, we might reflect about something that's really bothering us. This will pass. You know, it's impermanent. You know, um, I would like it to pass quickly and soon, but it will pass. <laughs> Right? That's using wisdom to help us come back to equanimity. Right? And we can use also the heart in certain ways. We can be in a really difficult interaction and we can go to compassion and hold myself and the other in compassion. That's using the heart more to come back to equanimity. Or sometimes when we are just way out of balance and we can't do any of what I just mentioned, then we may use just let me just do loving-kindness for myself and not even think about what's happening. And just like hold myself as if I was a parent holding a child, just with loving-kindness. Or sometimes we can just go to, go to beauty, you know, if we have a really hard thing happen 
One way to come back to equanimity is just to do something which makes us in contact with our own joy or beauty. Be in nature, listen to music. Be with, I don't know, a young child who may just bring a sense of warmth and beauty. These are all ways to come back to equanimity. There are also some bodily-based ways of coming back to equanimity, which have been which have been important for me, and I work with them personally all the time. And I want to, to uh, give two two practices that you might find useful. One of them is simply sometimes we lose equanimity because our minds are just overly active, and we can't get out of a mind loop. Right? That makes equanimity hard sometimes. And so it can be very helpful sometimes to just shift the energy so we can actually use the body to move to awareness of the body so we go out to some extent of that mind loop. One way I like to talk about it is we break the monopoly of the compulsive mind. (laughs) And we can use the body to do that. Very simple way. Now, I should say that using the body to help develop equanimity takes practice and training. It's not something which we just, you know, I mention it today, three hours later you're in a pickle. And then you just use the technique I described. Usually doesn't work like that. Usually we have to practice some. So one technique that's very helpful to develop is just developing more body awareness in general. And so Anything that supports our development of body awareness, doing yoga, being really aware of your body, doing walking meditation. Here's a further technique that, that um, quite simple. Sometimes we can just be aware of our body as we're listening. But one technique that's simple is to right now, as you're listening to me, be aware of your hands and your feet. Maybe be aware of your hands on your lap and your feet on the floor, just right now as you're listening. And you can practice developing the ability while you're in the midst like of a meeting or somewhere where thought is going on to have some connection with your body. This actually breaks the monopoly of the mind. And what you can do sometimes if you're really uh, feeling like your mind is overly active (laughs) is to somehow bring in awareness of the body. The mind still may be 90% of what's going on or 80% but it's not 100%. And that will start to shift things. When you do this well, it can really help a lot. You know, or for anyone who practices yoga or practices something like qigong, you can work with that ability to come back into your body. You know, or to do some of the yoga postures when you're really feeling out of balance, or to use a qigong practice that can really help you come back to more a sense of grounding and center. So it's helpful in um, martial arts, for example, the concepts are used a lot about grounding and center. It's very helpful to have a sense of how can I come back to grounding, which means connecting with the earth, with my body. If I can have a way of grounding, this can be a resource when I'm out of balance. I just come back, it could be as simple as just let me just stand up and feel the earth right now and my body on the earth. No matter what's happening, let me just feel the earth. That would be a way of grounding, you know, or come to a familiar posture that helps. Another way is to have a sense of a center. A lot of what happens when we lose equanimity is we lose our center. 
And so one training that occurs that takes a little more time than what I described, in martial arts, one develops the ability to have a sense of awareness in the belly and to have a sense of here's my center in the belly. That takes more training. You have to really do one of these practices. But when that center is well developed, it's something which is present all the time. And you don't, so if you're interested in that, I would sign up for a, maybe a Qigong class, you know, or, or work with that. But there are ways that when you develop, you know, personally, I just, over a two-year period, I just, as a meditation object, focused on my awareness of my belly or my center as an object. I did that for two years and kind of burned it into consciousness. <laughs> uh, so it's there most of the time. But what it helps, what I found, I mentioned this, I think, two times ago. Personally, I felt that my mind was pretty open and my heart was pretty open, but I didn't have that sense of center and I still got knocked around. We, many of us have beautiful hearts that are wide open and our minds may be clear. If we don't have that bodily base, we will be knocked around. And so it's very valuable to, to develop there. And a second practice that I want to bring in is, uh, this will be one that I may ask you to stand up. This is called, this is a way also to have a kind of center and a kind of grounding. Because that's what we want when we're out of balance or not equanimous. And I'm going to ask you to do this in two steps. This is an experiential practice, a little more experiential than the just feeling the hands and the feet. But that is a wonderful practice. If you can keep doing that at certain critical moments, that will be a resource. I can guarantee you. Just do it all the time. It really helps us to stay connected with our bodies. So the second practice is, has two steps. And um, if you want to, you can close your eyes for this, but you don't have to. The first step will be to, and this is all a bodily, bodily practice. This is a somatic practice. So what that means is that I'm going to invite you to let your awareness really start to sculpt your body. So the first part of it is I'm going to invite you to go into a state of not being equanimous, kind of a state out of balance in which you may be upset. Don't choose the worst, most difficult way that you lose balance, please. I want to not have too many people to take care of after the end of the... Morning. Uh, But choose a state that kind of degree of difficulty is five to seven out of a scale of ten. And think of something that knocks you off center in which you lose balance and let your body go into the shape that it assumes when you're out of balance and feel free to exaggerate it a little bit. Think first, so the way to do it is to think of the situation in which you lose equanimity, you lose balance. It could be in a typical discussion with someone, you know, a boss, a co-worker, a member of your family. Think First, think of that situation. Let it become, you know, for a minute or two, let it be there for you. And then let it sculpt your body. And let it possibly exaggerate. Like for me, one way that I lose balance, if it's, I'm getting a little bit upset or tight, my <coughs> hands start clenching, my chest caves in, my shoulders round a little bit, I get a little bit scrunched up. I'm going to exaggerate that some. So let yourself bring the situation to mind and then let that sculpt your body. And I'm going to take us out of this 
It's very soon, so don't worry too much. And as you find yourself in this posture, and you know, if you actually, if you need to, you could also be on the floor if you want to. You don't have to stay on your chairs. But as you find yourself in this posture, tune in to the particular aspects of your body that let you know that you don't have balance, or to use that metaphor, or maybe that you're contracted. Tune in. Like for me, it's tuning into the way my hands are, the way my chest is, the shoulders could be any part of your body. Just tune in and notice where you can most distinctively know that you're out of balance at the level of the body. And tune in in a way that you might actually be mindful of this the next time it happens just in the flow of everyday life. So you can really kind of make a bookmark of the way that, you, that your own pattern is for losing balance in this way. So make that bookmark. And now I'd like you slowly to move to a way that your body is when you feel empowered and awake and with your fullest energy. And if you want to stand up, that's fine. Slowly move into that place. Let your body go into this place of fullness. We can call it an empowered state, an awakened state. Let it move your body out of the contraction. And again, notice the particular ways that you know from being aware of your body that you're in this more empowered state. Tune in internally. You know, for me, it's the straightness of the spine. My hands have shifted. My chest is open. I'm connected with the ground. Tune in yourself for what lets you know that you're in this state. Again, make a kind of bookmark so that you know how to get back here.
and continue in this state for the rest of your lives. <laughs> I'm half serious, <laughs> maybe three quarters serious. So, but but actually stay stay in. Maybe as you, if you can, as you're listening now, stay in that posture, or stay with your body that way. Now, I'll just make a few more comments, and then I think we'll open it up. I think I'm going to have to stay uh, next, go next time to the talking about the principle of um, fullness of effort and practice and letting things be what they are, because I want to <laughs> give some time for this discussion. But I want to just make a few comments about what we just did. On the one hand, it can seem kind of simple. We just cha- change posture, right? But it's actually a lot more than that. That what we just did was very simple, but I think it's quite profound. When we go to that way that our body, it's really a different organization of our body and nervous system. If we can actually go into that posture, it will tend to make it way more difficult for certain mental states or emotional states to be there. It's actually a different state of your nervous system than your contracted state. And so it's actually a very simple but powerful practice. It's actually one reason why there's a lot of emphasis on posture in meditative traditions. Originally, I thought it was just kind of to look good or something, look like the Buddha statues or something. But it's actually, uh, I think, reflects a sophisticated understanding of the body, that it's actually about our energetic bodies and uh, the way our nervous system works and the relationship of certain posture to certain uh, qualities of mind and heart and body. And so this particular practice of going to this way of being actually shifts our nervous system so that certain states are more likely to be there. It's a practice that we can do continually. You know, you're waiting for public transportation. Go into that state. You're having a difficult occurrence happen and you notice, it's partly to have the mindfulness to notice where does your body go when you lose equanimity or balance. Our bodies will tend to go into certain kinds of uh, heavily conditioned reactive patterns. So it's not just our minds or our hearts, it's also our bodies. And when we know those, when we're tuned in, like for me, it was no, I started to be aware, let me notice when my hands start to get a little clenched. I'm at a meeting, I'm mindful my hands are clenched. I may be mindful of my hands being clenched before I'm mindful of my thoughts. And so awareness of the body can cue you in to when you're losing balance, perhaps before you would have noticed otherwise. So mindfulness of the body, doing an exercise like is very important. Also, the, the other side of that is that if you can actually, sometimes you find yourself out of balance, upset, if you actually shift your posture to this empowered state, you will actually shift your consciousness somewhat. You know, for the really hardest, hardest things, you may need, it may take time, you may need some other resources. But what are some of the implications of this? One can actually deliberately be in that quality of the body and practice it a lot, and it will tend to be a place you go to. So if you practice, it's kind of the... Uh, the esoteric message of all those people who are 
grandmothers or whatever who said, keep good posture. <laughs> it's kind of the esoteric message, which they may or may not have been aware of. <laughs> but uh, we can actually, I, I have people I've worked with, I work a lot with this kind of somatic practice, who uh, notice, I've sometimes had repetitive thoughts that are quite disabling, and working with this, when they, some of the people have really taken to this, and they are able to kind of be in that more empowered state of the body and nervous system for a good part of the day, and some of the old conditioned thoughts just do not come up when they're there. So this is a tool to practice, to cultivate as a resource. It's something to do when you find yourself in a distressed state. You can actually go to a different posture. It will tend, not 100% certainty, but it will tend to help you cut through that, you know. Very simple, you know, like the example that I was giving about just, you know, if you have your chest all uh, caved in and your shoulders closed like that, that is much more uh, likely to be linked with certain states of mind and heart than if you're very open and straight. It's very interesting, isn't it? The, the way, so the, these are some resources to help us not just use the wisdom and the heart, but also the body for cultivating equanimity. Put all those together. Tremendous team. <laughs> you know, we have the resources of wisdom and mindfulness. We have the resources of the heart, compassion, loving kindness, and then also somatic practices. You know, because as I mentioned, from my own experience I know, I can have great wisdom, great heart, and I can still get knocked around. And the bodily level is a third important piece to bring in. So quite, quite crucial. So I think I will end here, and I'll bring in that further teaching about equanimity next time, because I, I think I'd love to just have a fair amount of open time, which we can have now, for any questions about what we've just done, but particularly if you've been working with the eight winds in the last week or two weeks to maybe report what you've been finding and ask any questions about any of these ways of cultivating equanimity through our wisdom, through working with the heart, qualities through working with the body. Let's just um, be silent just for maybe a minute to let things settle and then we can talk together. Just one further thought before, before I let Cynthia's question, which was that what we just did uh, in that experiential exercise, I think, illustrates a larger aspect of the transformative uh, process, which is that it's valuable to look at where we get stuck or caught. Very valuable to know where we get stuck or caught. A lot of our practice is about hanging out and, you know, just noticing our habits, our patterns, where we get stuck, our suffering, and so forth. 
But it also is very, very helpful, and I think a really significant part of practice, not so much to be preoccupied by where we get stuck, but to actually deliberately cultivate our more awakened states. And for me, the rhythm of practice is to do both. It's to know where we get stuck, our own personal patterns of getting stuck, more universal patterns, but it's also to go deliberately to beautiful states, loving-kindness, mindfulness, wisdom, and hang out there a lot. And a lot of our change occurs by actually hanging out with the beautiful states. Sometimes we don't have to stay indefinitely with the difficult or negative states. I think this is actually, there's been, there have been parallel changes in the field of psychotherapy related to that, where a number of psychotherapists say, well, we used to just hang out too much with the old stories and the old stuff, right? And actually that is not so effective as a way to change that actually one can change very significantly by forgetting about the old stories for periods of time and going to the beautiful states. Now you can't do that if you're afraid of the old stuff or want to get rid of it or I was coming out of aversion. But basically there's a place, in my experience, one has to know the old negative patterns well enough to be, you have to hang out with them well enough to notice them when they come up. And that's a, that's a significant amount. You have to notice them well enough to see them when they come up. But beyond that, it can be very valuable sometimes just to strengthen, and again, we can think of it at the level of the brain, we strengthen different neural networks, or different neural pathways, we might say, that are more about compassion, or loving-kindness, or wisdom. We strengthen those more and more, and we need to know the old patterns to see them when they come up and maybe respond skillfully, but we don't need to stay with them, as it were, ad nauseum which sometimes uh, people would criticize some types of psychotherapy for doing that, you know, for staying too long with suffering. And I think it reflects maybe a, a lack of understanding of how much there can be a shift simply from being in very positive states for sustained periods. So I just wanted to add that. So please, uh, Cindy. Um, I had a, um, a great kind of lesson in equanimity by watching a documentary mm -hmm. um, called Inside Job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is, you know, and, and what it is is just about how all these people have gotten away with destroying the world economy. Yeah. And nothing's changed. And nobody's held accountable. And so it's like, okay, it is what it is. But I guess my question is, how do you just not... What's the difference between being equanimous about situations that are so unfair yeah. um, and yet not just go, oh, well, nothing's ever going to change. Yeah. I can't do anything about it. And That's a great question. It's really a question about uh, having seen this film, which didn't that win an Oscar? Yeah. Uh, inside Job about, what, the last few, kind of a, I haven't seen it, How but... the investment banks yeah. basically destroyed their <laughs> banks, robbing all the yeah. investors and... So the effects <laughs> of... So seeing a pretty thorough documentary on the roots of the economic, some of the roots of the economic decline, 
and the role particularly of certain banks and policies and so forth. So how to understand that, which can give you maybe a big picture, but how to, you know, what's the difference between equanimity and simply saying, ah, it's just the way it is, I'm going to cultivate my private peace, I won't do anything, you know, is that equanimity? Uh, and so this, this is actually a really important question for equanimity, because I think even the very word equanimity can suggest a certain kind of aloofness or passivity or resignation, you know, and so forth. So I think that it's quite important. This is actually where what I was going to teach about that I didn't get to is, is really important. It's a principle um, that really reflects the way that equanimity in its mature state has to be linked with compassion, with these other states of the heart. And that compassion urges us to keep responding through the suffering and the roots of suffering, always. You know, and to do so as skillfully as possible. And with big systems, that's quite challenging to know what to do, of course. But, um, but you know, we, uh, so there's, I think there's equanimity gives us the balance to actually be skillful and not get caught up in um, a lot of typical traps maybe that activists get caught in, such as demonizing the enemy, having infighting among one's fellow activists, very, very common. And so I think that, um, you know, I think maybe it's helpful to think of people who maybe are uh, archetypal or exemplary uh, people who have been active, and one can see in them the quality of equanimity. You know, when I did my book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, I interviewed a lot of people about equanimity and about this point. You know, people who were long-time spiritually grounded, uh, basically people providing service and, and also activists. I interviewed a lot of them. And it's some, it was some of the basis for what, I was, what I'll talk about in two weeks. Uh, and in them, one found a deep commitment coupled with equanimity. So, so if you think of people like Martin Luther King Jr., you know, whatever his, you know, uh, uh, complex person, but one can see an enormous amount of equanimity at the same time as completely continual uh, responsiveness, right? Or think of Gandhi, very similar. He had equanimity, and you can see it differently for their different people who are Dorothy Day, you know, who are people whom you might, other people you might, you know, know famous or not famous. And so I think the key is to, you know, in the teaching is to see where equanimity turns into its near enemy, typically by some kind of aversion or fear. You know, like we can have a certain equanimity about the way the country is, even though it's, there are a lot of negative things. And if it becomes a reason not to act, we can look into that and see, you know, am I afraid to act? Am I just cultivating my private garden? so to speak, very common. You know. In fact, I brought in passage from Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the great translators of our time, who, who has uh, started an organization called Buddhist Global Relief. And he, he says this, uh, I was going to read this next time, but I think I'll read this. Uh, let me see where this is. 
it seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth of suffering largely against the background of middle-class lifestyles as the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships. Uh, too often, I feel, our focus on these aspects of suffering has made us oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population. Quite a challenge. He, he, this, this is on the web. It's called a challenge to Buddhists. You know, it's saying, watch out for middle-class Buddhism. Right? Kind of provocative, right? right? And, um, and so that would be to see where we get caught, where our equanimity becomes resignation or overly private or overly self-centered and where it's lacking in really compassion. It could be, you know, and again, I think it's important for a certain period, sometimes we have to find our balance by not, you know, not having too much focus on the news for a year sometimes. That's important personally for some people to find their own balance and healing. But then the question is, do we come back and be with the larger world? Thanks. Please. Just since you mentioned Bhikkhu Bodhi, by the way, he translates Upeka as non-preferentiality, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. Non-preferentiality? Yeah. yeah. It really helps me to understand it. Yeah, it's sometimes understood. Um, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's understood in a, uh, Upeka, or equi- what we translate as equanimity usually, appears in a lot of contexts, and sometimes that would be a better translation, yeah. So it's, because it, equanimity is sort of a, it's not a common word in our vocabulary. So non-preferentiality could be non-preference for this or that happening. You know, it's, it's really, a, a, I, I, think, I think balance is pretty good. Yeah. Staying balanced, yeah. Thank you. You know, and, and the level of the heart, it's a non-partiality towards towards any being. It's having kind of a balanced approach towards all beings at its further development. Other thoughts or reflections, questions about equanimity or about the somatic practices that we did? Be interested to hear how those were for you. How many of you are still in your awakened, empowered state? say something. Okay. I have a very effective, uh, but unfortunately expensive way of keeping in the body, and, and that is by riding horseback. Yeah. Um, <laughs> horses are powerful, and uh, but very reactive. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and they're also very present. You know, yeah. They're, they're not thinking about other things. They're totally present all the time. So, you know, if you want a really bad ride, you'll be preoccupied, tense, stiff, um, clenched hands, um, clenched b- uh, legs, and so yeah. forth. And the horse will tell you very quickly that um, you know he's not happy about this. <laughs> and so you have to, uh, you know, fix it. You know, so yeah. you have to stay with, stay present. Yeah. And, and all. What I find very useful though is to take a deep breath. Yeah. I mean, people talk about. It. So you take that deep breath. Yeah. And the horse will instantly feel it. Yeah. I mean, he's very conscious of you. And uh, you take that deep breath, and you just for a few seconds just let your body go. Yeah. Just do nothing. Yeah. Just let everything hang, and then fill up your lungs, and and take in the and then and you'll feel the horse decompress, and then you say, okay, now we'll start riding. Yeah. <laughs> so that's. Uh, so yeah. So um, so 
what's necessary just in that situation of being with a horse to, to be present. And we probably could imagine a lot of other situations which really you can't get away with not being present, right? What are some other ones like that? Other situations where you have to be in your body and have to be present. Please. Well, I'm thinking of um, when we first started meditating, I, the first thing I did was to follow my breath. Yeah. And to sort of scan my body. Yeah. But I have a lot of pain. Yeah. And I don't, that sometimes forces me to yeah. be present to it, but there's different ways to be present to yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if this is a question. But no, it's more, more reflection. I was, I was really asking for what are some situations in which one has to, almost has to be aware of the body, and that sometimes when there's pain or when we have, let's say, a disability, or when we have to be careful with our bodies where we, where we may hurt it. Those are situations that um, actually can, can support further mindfulness. And I was thinking that, uh, you know, driving cars doesn't support our practice as much as being on horses, does it? <laughs> Easier to space out, you know. Uh, any other situations where we almost have to be with our bodies or be, or skiing. Skiing, yeah. Yeah. Certain <coughs> kinds of physical activities where if you are daydreaming, it's dangerous. Yeah. Sailing, yeah. Yeah. Please. And practicing yoga. Practicing yoga, yeah. Nice. Yeah, to be present. So, so those are all activities which will support what we're looking at here. Yeah. It's, it's been, I've been um, working with body practice probably the last four years. Yeah. So I really relate to, to yeah. what you've been saying and using it in my own practice. Um, but what has been fascinating for me is that we have such habitual ways of holding our body. Yeah. Um, and although awareness has brought attention to this, my body will still return to this sort of tight holding yeah. pattern that it's yeah. been so used to yeah. through my childhood. Um, that the awareness has to almost be continual yeah. to, to release that holding pattern, which has, has become so habitual that even practicing a, a loose, more open yeah. presence needs constant, constant kind yeah, of yeah. remembrance. Yeah, great. And remind me of your name? Megan. Megan, that uh, Megan's comments about um, in exploring probably very uh, open states of the body and relaxed and maybe mindful, part of that is also to be aware of the ways that our conditioning often has us tight or holding and that um, these are deeply wired in. Not, not hard wiring, but they're, you know, they're wired in through our conditioning and they take time to uh, work through. That, and that the, a lot of this practice, you know, if we're being with a contracted state of our body, we're sort of reinforcing that. And so it's quite important to just keep on being with these more open and expanded states. And the other piece is that those holding patterns are related to thoughts. It's a whole way of being, right? It's a whole way of being which is connected with ways of thinking, ways of reacting, ways of being with certain stimuli. It's a kind of complete system, really, connected with core beliefs. You know, it's a, and 
part of our practice. And I think one of the ways that some recent work, the last 30 or 40 years of sort of psychologically based studies of the body can really help us in these ways, which I think are quite important to connect with our meditation. You know, because some, some of these practices, just these simple ones that I gave, I think really help us to work at those levels. And, and we do need to really study very closely the old patterns. You know, and if we notice ourselves going into some old pattern, we can use just that simple practice we just did today and release it and go into the more open pattern. You notice yourself at a family gathering going into this or that bodily state, right? Go to the, you go to the, going to the first one, let's say. Okay, family gatherings for some are high degree of difficulty. But, but, and then we can, we can actually just go to a family gathering, don't say anything, just stay in an empowered state and see what the difference is. Or at work, yeah. Uh, maybe last, last one, Marty. Yeah. Okay. Well, what occurred to me that that I then had to take and, and generalize more yeah. because it, it would only apply to some of us, uh, nursing a baby. Yeah. But any time when you are connecting with another person or people, let's say uh, you're trying to be present to a friend yeah. who's going through a difficulty, or yeah. you, putting your, being in a place where you're open, receptive, grounded, that will have a tremendous impact yeah. on that communication. Beautiful, yeah. And any of us uh, raising children, being in the helping professions, actually doing anything, that the state of our body communicates something. You know, just like uh, really focusing here because of course our minds and our hearts also communicate. And so without having, getting overly tense about it, it is important to say that every moment matters. <coughs> without getting over, oh gosh, I blew that moment. <laughs> you know, but actually, it means that we can keep on coming back. And the beauty of these, some of these practices that I just gave you is that no matter what's happened, you can always go to that more empowered state. Or you can always, again, we can, and we want to connect it to, we can always cultivate mindfulness or wisdom or the open heart. So, so I think this really starts to give um, maybe a little larger repertoire of tools for both cultivating equanimity and uh, working with uh, situations in which we lose equanimity. That's really been my intention. I hope, um, hope you have a good time next week with Tony and that maybe in two weeks we'll take this a little further and I'll bring in the teachings which I didn't get to today, which are some of my favorite. Okay, <laughs> okay. so let's just sit for uh, 30 seconds or a minute. And I'll invite you to, to sit and invite what was helpful from today for you and any intentions for the next week or two weeks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.